Welcome to the podcast series about why loneliness is becoming a health issue in Canada and what can we do about it. Studies have shown that people report fewer social connections, decrease in tolerance and trust, and eroding political and civic engagement in our communities. Robert Putnam's Bullying Alone suggests that our overall experience of being in community have steadily declined since the 1960s. More recently, social isolation has been demonstrated to have impacts on our health and well-being. My name is Heather Keem from the Tamrec Institute. And today we are going to be talking with Paul Young, who is a health promoter and planner in Toronto. He promotes walking and cycling throughout Ontario with a company called Public Space Workshop. He has been working in urban design and shaping the built environment for over 20 years. I've had the pleasure of working with Paul several years ago when we were making our communities healthier by a built environment plan for two counties. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Heather. Thanks for um, for launching this conversation. It's a really important one and timely. So let's start off with um, talking about the the trends. What are the trends that we are starting to notice around the loneliness? Well, <clears throat> the trends that have, uh, I guess, moved to the forefront of, of the planning world the, the biggest, one of the biggest challenges we're facing is the uh, the amount of time that we're spending in cars and, and the impact that that has started to have on people's sense of connectedness. And in turn, um, we can look to this, this growing trend towards loneliness and trace it back to the way that we're designing some of our communities. And the trends that we're seeing most acutely are uh, there's a we're all familiar with the term urban sprawl now, and, and these are communities that have uh, been built in the last, well, roughly starting around the 60s, where there was a desire to move to the country where we thought the air was cleaner and, and things are greener. And as a result, we've, we've settled into communities and, and continued to design communities that have become more they're spread out. People are literally separated by more distances, distances between the homes, uh, distances between homes and workplace, distances have grown between your home and, and places that people go on a regular basis, like schools, services, shopping, all that kind of thing. So that's a major challenge that, that planners are facing uh, today. And the other piece is um, how we've been designing the streets, streets and roads that connect those places. Again, we've put an emphasis on moving people in cars and, and less so on foot uh, or on bicycle or transit. Because those distances are so great, um, often you know, traveling by, by car and, and on foot, it's just not realistic for, for people. Uh, so the streets have become what we call incomplete. They're designed just for moving cars and moving cars quickly. Um, and of course, we're facing all sorts of challenges with congestion and traffic crashes and things related to, to you know, driving everywhere and, and driving everywhere quickly or as quickly as we can. Some of, the, some of the, the things that I've noticed in terms of, you know, the urban design is there, there used to be community stores on every corner and, you know, porches and um, parkettes were, were within every neighborhood. And now you have to go outside of your neighborhood to get those, those amenities. So the, the neighborhood design. Yeah. So th- this idea that, you know, I mentioned the, the notion of having incomplete streets. Well, it's 
turned out that we have incomplete communities as well, where you're living uh, in a place that may not have any other type of land use except for residential within a three, four, five, six kilometer radius, meaning that in order to get to those other types of uses, you have to travel a great distance. So, yeah, we're looking more now to the, you know, the, the way we used to design communities. Most, most areas have a, what we call the, you know, the old part of town mm. that would typically, that would, that would have been built around the turn of the century, maybe in the 1920s, where cars were not the dominant uh, mode of, of travel. And, and as a result, you get these fine-grained street grids uh, where the blocks are small and and uh, you get uh, buildings that have often on the main street, you'll have many different uses along that main street, including residential. So you'll have apartments above shops or uh, you'll have services on the main street. If you're lucky to live enough in that old uh, part of town, then you have uh, typically you'll have most things you need on an everyday basis within walking or bicycle distance. But as you get to the outside of that older part of town, things start to change. And that's where we separated all the, all the shopping goes over there on the out, outside of town in the, in the mall or the big box power center. All the, uh, even the rec centers now are put out on, on um, you know, less expensive land on the outside of town, making those distances much, much bigger. And off we go, we have to hop in the car again. So yeah, it's uh, mm. now I think what's happening is we're starting to look towards those older parts of town as a, a model to build the new parts of town. So what was it about those places that made it so easy to get around uh, in other ways other than jumping in the car? And can we replicate those features in a, in a new subdivision, for example? Mm-hmm. So that's a trend that we're really starting to see now. And going and kind of going back to the design of the old neighborhoods is there was bumping places and spaces and and this actually I kind of think ties in with technology in that you know you used to go to the grocery store you would meet your neighbor and have a conversation and how's it going or you know but now with technology you can do all of your grocery shopping online and you know I want to pick it up at this time you pull through. You don't even get out of your car. The person opens up the, mm-hmm. your, your, your boot of the car, throws the stuff in, and you drive away. So you don't even need – there's no social interaction in a, in a grocery shop anymore. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to uh, have a chit-chat with your neighbor if you're stuck in a, you know, a two-ton piece of steel. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, don't, you feel guilty stopping for one thing because you're blocking traffic. So you might, you know, if you saw your neighbor from the window of the car, you might wave, but you're not going to have an in-depth conversation, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I think we've, you know, being stuck in the car has definitely reduced the number of opportunities that we have to, to catch up with a neighbor or, or hear about what different families have been up to. And I think the trend towards ordering online and picking up your groceries, that driving experience going to the grocery store can be quite miserable. So yeah. I think you know, as much as we try to make it easier, uh, the thought of looking for a parking spot and then trying to get from the parking lot into the store and lineups. And I mean, I look at this trend towards big box um, where we've got huge centers for either for shopping or for, you know, and now I think of the, those giant rec centers as sort of like a big box recreation complex as well you've got the same challenges finding parking spots and uh, god forbid if you get stuck you know during some kind of event where 
everyone's leaving or going at the same time. And that's typical around a lot of schools now. We notice that the pickup and drop-off areas become um, places where you, you'll see uh, you know, road rage and just not a, a happy scene. So, <laughs> so yeah, we're reducing the number of places we can meet each other and it's becoming, um, no, that's definitely stress. It's, that's stressful for people and that has an impact on mental health. That's a great segue into the, the, the next trend that we're seeing is the number of people who are lonely. And the Ontario Chief Medical Officer of Health released uh, an annual report last year about connected community and healthier together. And in there, they talk about the evidence of loneliness and how it affects our health, that six out of 10 residents say that they are very or somewhat have a strong sense of community, four out of 10 um, may know most of their neighbors, four out of 10 may wow. know their neighbors. And six out of 10 residents have the confidence in local businesses and social justice systems. So there's an increase in risk of, of health. And so, you know, that, that rise in the loneliness is, is a really important trend we should be talking about. Yeah. And I, th- I think in terms of the built environment and how it contributes to that loneliness, we haven't really made it easy for people to meet each other informally. Or even to set up, uh, you know, hey, why don't we get together and do X activity? The places have become a little more difficult to get to. So we talked about the old part of town where I think you mentioned the public square yes. or um, perhaps a market uh, where you might see people on, a, on a, maybe a weekly basis. Even places of worship have, uh, you know, steadily declining attendance. And those are what we would have relied on. Uh, traditionally to, to go out and meet your neighbor. Those, those spaces where we call them sometimes the third space, where it's not the place you live or the place you work, but it's the place where you're, you know, it's everything else so out in between the buildings. So yeah, it's a challenge for sure. And again, we haven't made it very easy. I think we're seeing a, a resurgence in things like market. Like I know public health units have been very active in promoting Farmers markets as a, a way to get not only fresh produce, but as a, a, an opportunity to meet people, recognizing that this loneliness piece needs to be addressed. We've, we're also starting to look at streets as, um, as part of the open space system. We know that 25, 30% of our public space, yes, that 25 to 30% of, of our public space is taken up by streets. So if we're dedicating that public space just to move cars around, we've lost a you know, huge opportunity. And we see in the older parts of town that the streets can be quite pleasant if you've got a tree-lined, nice wide sidewalk with benches and uh, maybe some shopping along the edges in the buildings. That becomes almost like a park in a sense. It's not the, the green grass that a typical park would have, but it's serving some of those functions. You can get out and walk around, experiencing, you know, uh, meeting uh, neighbors in a, in a spontaneous way. And it's just, uh, it's a nice, you know, pleasant way to get to a destination as well. So I think we're definitely seeing uh, more attention being paid to streets as places for people rather than just for cars. So there's a lot of, in, in my background as a landscape architect, we did a lot of that work trying to make streets better for walking, cycling, uh, rollerblading, what have you, accessibility if you're in a wheelchair. But we would typically get into a little bit of a, you know, a battle with the traffic engineers because we're pushing to create more space for, for, the, for people and, and there's always pressure from decision makers to, to solve this congestion problem, right? So make the roads wider for cars, put in more lanes, that kind of thing. And we know now that that's not going to solve the problem. 
so yeah, we're we're definitely looking more at streets as uh, part of that open space system, mm-hmm. make it easier for people to meet. You started to kind of go into this, so I want to take our conversation to the to the built environment. Um, for those of this, for those people out there, you know, may not know what, what do you mean by built environment? What is that piece of it? Mm-hmm. And you've talked you've talked uh, um, about how it's linked to loneliness. Do you have any examples that you can in, in the work that you've done of of kind of that that relationship? Yeah, so the built environment, what we're really talking about is all the things that we build. When you step out the door and look around, uh, depending if you're in a rural area, again, I'll take us back to the, the old part of town where it's, it's really a combination of buildings and streets and parks. And then um, as you move towards the outskirts of town, you may be encountering um, agricultural areas, uh, parkland, woodlots, or suburban sprawl. So that's the the context that we're living in now. And and that built environment we know is having an impact on on things like mental health, physical health, uh, people's ability to to move around and get some physical activity. And there's a lot more attention being paid now to the space in between the buildings. So yes, the buildings are important, but that that space that that we're left over with, what we call the public right-of-way, um, or, or park space and, uh, and how we use those spaces. I think, you know, we've been fairly uh, lucky in Canada that we have a lot of space. Mm. But now as, uh, as, as spaces are filling up and towns are getting a little more built up, starting to look at those spaces and, and really ask the question, is it, is it a place that people want to be? What are some of the activities that people would really like to do here? And what would make it a, a community-friendly place, a place where people would come and meet and uh, hang out? So that's, that's another, that's sort of a, a direction that things are going in now where people are getting involved in the design of those places. Planners are starting to open up the decision-making process, uh, recognizing that you know, local knowledge is good knowledge and, and it's important to connect with people to find out uh, what it is they'd like to do in those spaces and, and uh, what kind of activities would bring them out. So we're seeing a lot more interest in redesigning park space to include things that would bring people together. For example, community gardening, places where people might have a little fire pit, uh, get together for an evening sing-song. What else have we seen? Uh, Things like pizza ovens, interactive playground spaces. I noticed the other day we have an exercise a little exercise park where they've put in equipment to allow people to do what you might do in a gym. So chin-up bars and climbing apparatus and nets and things like that. Very popular. Like, I'm, I'm amazed. Um, but just a different way of looking at our, our park space and uh, trying to in, include more people in, in the activities that might go on there. In the in, in the um, asset-based community development world, instead of doing and building our streets and our parks for people, we're doing it with and by people. So that's mm-hmm. the, you know, I can see when you're talking, I'm like, that's what they're doing. We're doing that big shift to, you know, working with the community to build these these spaces. I just have a question because you talk about incomplete streets or complete streets. What do you mean by that? So what we found, um, we know that it's, you know, one of the great, I guess, uh, things that we can do to, to, if you're, you know, wanting to stay healthy is to have regular physical activity in your life. And things like walking to school or walking to work, or if you're, you know, a little bit further away, maybe taking the bicycle uh, to go shopping. Those are all, you know, fantastic um, activities to stay healthy, to live long. 
And, you know, of course, meeting other people as you do it, it's much easier to meet someone while you're walking or cycling. But we haven't made that easy. So in the last, you know, 50, 60 years, we've been designing our streets in a way that make it actually very difficult to walk and bike. In fact, many people would say it's, it's an unhealthy activity to get out and walk and bike around uh, because there's, you know, often we're, we're doing that activity alongside four or six lanes of traffic that's moving at 60, 70 kilometers an hour. So it doesn't feel safe. In fact, you know, it, it, it can be quite dangerous. It can be difficult to cross the road. And, you know, that's saying that as a, as a person, I mean, I don't have any physical disabilities, but there are many people and children and seniors who, who would find that kind of condition almost impossible. So, so now w- when we say complete streets, the idea is that uh, we need, and many municipalities have this policy, some are, are more in its infancy, but the idea that whenever we build a street or a road, we need to make sure that it's complete. Uh, if we're resurfacing a road or reconstructing it, um, these complete streets policies would uh, ensure that we take into consideration not just moving cars, but moving uh, pedestrians, cyclists, people in mobility devices, and even transit. So if you've got populations that can support a transit system, that would be part of the, uh, the design of the street. And I should add, ideally, transit in its own right-of-way. So cities like Kitchener, Waterloo, Toronto, you know, Hamilton, they're, they're all, and all around the world, starting to prioritize uh, transit above moving cars, which, what does it look like? It's a, a dedicated lane for people who are taking the bus or, or streetcar or something like that. Um, and then the next uh, level in the hierarchy would be walking and cycling. And the, and the single occupancy vehicle, which we know, you know, we've got huge issues around climate change, consumption of fuel, that kind of thing. We know single occupancy vehicles are not a very efficient way to use our roads. So those are at the bottom of the hierarchy. So that change is slow in coming, but it started with this notion of complete streets and the idea that most of our streets right now are incomplete. So this is great because we've now outlined what is the built environment? How has the built environment really laid the, the, the pathway, no pun intended, on loneliness? <laughs> and so, you know, what can we do as citizens and organizations and municipalities to alter our built environment and the way we are, we are planning our cities so that we can um, reduce loneliness? That's a great question. And I think, you know, I ask myself, is this something that people really want? Is it, is it, and, and the answers that are coming back time and again, more people when surveyed want to walk and bike uh, more frequently we know this, right? This research is at least five, 10 years old now. Um, we look at ads for selling homes and uh, the type of imagery that uh, developers are using. It's often a, a family out on uh, you know, bikes yes. uh, riding on a pathway through the woods or something. There's no, you know, often you, you won't even see an image of a house. So we know that these things are, are desirable, which I think, you know, politicians and decision makers are starting to understand so the, the table is set, really. We have to move forward on some kind of a strategy. So I think, I think back to some of the work that was done in Niagara Region with the, the walk-on groups, where the whole idea was to look at, you know, as you say, asset-based community development, looking at you know, what are we doing right now that is working well, 
no matter how small or, or um, you know, seemingly small, let's use those examples and build on them and accelerate them. So if, for example, we've got a safe route to school that's been established or we've put in new sidewalks along the street to help uh, children get to school more easily, uh, how can we do more of that? We have new homes being built that uh, have the garages in the back and uh, front porches on the front. And we've seen some of those examples, Niagara on the Lake comes to mind. Um, how can we do more of that? How can we have a conversation with developers to build on that good stuff? I think the planning, the, the people who make the decisions around uh, what we build and what we don't build, so the transportation planners, the land use planners, they are starting to open up the conversation much more to the public. So there's an opportunity there to involve uh, an informed group of people in, in that process so that, that in turn, if you have a constituency of people who are really uh, waving the flag and, and uh, the cheerleaders, for lack of a better word, for, for walkability and bikeability, those cheerleaders give the, the elected representatives a better sense of comfort. If, they, if they're going to go out on a limb and say, look, okay, I think it's time to put some traffic calming in place on this street put some street trees in, let's make a, um, you know, let's connect it into a trail system um, so that we start to really build this network so that people can move around without their car. That kind of change can take a lot of political courage. Uh, but if you have a group of citizens that are organized, informed, and in the background cheering them on, that can really help the process. And I think I learned a lot through working with Walk On, this group of, of public health units in the Niagara region, where you know, public health really took a, a kind of a supportive background role in getting those groups established. So we had conversations about what makes a walkable community, you know, figured out what, what is working right now, what are some of your staff people doing to support that agenda, put them all together in a room and, and came up with a strategic plan for that particular municipality. And, um, you know, different, different towns will go in different directions, but it's just, you know, any kind of, you know, action on that front is good, you know, and to get that ball rolling. It's, you know, it's the citizens are key um, to get that political support. So I know with the walk on work that we that we did in, in my two counties, it was the citizens who did come together and they mm -hmm. reviewed every every municipality has to have an official plan. And they used documents like the chief medical officer health report to help back as to why we need to do this and, you know, made deputations to council on the importance of it. And they didn't they didn't work against the county, but they worked with the county. So when a sidewalk was up for renewal or, you know, there was a new subdivision in, they would be knocking on the door saying, remember, we need complete streets. We need sidewalks. And so they were, they were a positive support for, and there were a few councillors who were in support with this. And so by having that backing of the constituents, they were able to, to move things forward. And then, you know, you talked about the um, cob ovens and, and marketplaces. And so again, citizens play a huge role in that because there's one thing to say we want a cob oven but for it to be installed and nobody use it you know that yeah. that the the counselors and the decision makers are going to see that so mm -hmm. as citizens we need to back what we say we're going to do yeah and that was always i remember one of the big uh pushbacks from you know communities that were skeptical on on things like cycling infrastructure they said well you know we're going to put all this money into bike lanes how do we know anyone's going to use it well the research now it's it's really clear that once you put this stuff in place people people flock to it so 
I think it's this whole question of you know retrofitting our communities. What can we do? We you know we're in a certain place now. Okay, we made some mistakes, but how can we how can we fix them? How can we begin the the, the, the work of, of making them better? And uh, we talked a bit about retrofitting parks and what you can do to bring in different activities into a park space and use it in a way that brings people together. And the same work is going on for our streets. We're adding traffic calming. We know how to do that now. We know how to how to bring speeds down so that the street becomes a more livable place. We know how to infill. So, you know, in, in, in uh, places where we can do this, it's better to build in the town rather than building on the outside of town. If you've got old gas stations or old shopping malls that are underutilized, Let's look at uh, infilling those with a mix of uses that include housing and, and perhaps retail and services. Just the whole idea that we can make our streets more like parks, uh, bring a little more density into the town, and that kind of work can really incrementally start to uh, to bring more people in and, and, and bring more opportunities for, for socializing and reducing that kind of isolation that we talked about earlier. I've noticed some of the churches are trying to repurpose if congregations are down, some have, have moved towards affordable housing and others have moved towards uh, co-working spaces so that people can come together. If they're, you know, some of us are stuck in our home offices and, and need to get out and meet other people. So, you know, a cafe is one way to do that or a co-working space. Yeah. So just ways of reclaiming the community and making it better and easier for people to meet. And I think, I think creativity has a huge role in this because I, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I was in Edmonton and they built little decks onto the street. So where the parking spots were oh, yeah. so that the yeah. restaurants can, you know, actually have a porch uh, for people to sit on. And in the city of Kitchener, one of the crosswalks, they painted. So it was art on, on the road. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know in, yeah. in, um, in Caledonia, we did open street where we shut down a street yeah. and then we had people playing and some, we had a, um, a gym bring their exercise bikes and did an exercise class on the street. And we had a cafe right in the middle of an intersection, which you would never ever sit on or enjoy, right. but there was lots of people out and, you know, yeah, it was a one-off opportunity, but I'm pretty sure there was connections and, you know, this was several years ago and I still remember and I still talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. I think you're right. Creativity is a huge catalyst for, for getting some of these things. I was in St. Thomas, and uh, they've really uh, pushed hard on building a, a park over their old rail line uh, that goes over the valley. There's an elevated rail there. Similar in New York City, they've got the, uh, the high line, uh, creating a, a place that, you know, just attracting tons and tons of people, but really a creative use of, of, of an open space setting. And as you say, the, uh, the park's making the streets a little bit more fun with the paint. There's lots of work going on now. Like we know that access to nature is a really positive thing for mental health um, and, and good mental health uh, helps reduce social isolation. But we know that, you know, being connected to nature is, is a, has a really positive benefit. Um, and streets, you know, we're starting to look at ways that we handle stormwater runoff, creating um, a green ways along the side of the street to collect that water and, and perhaps irrigate uh, uh, plants along the side of the road. Um, again, just trying to green up um, areas that we, had, you know, we wouldn't have thought of before, uh, using them to, to bring more nature into the city. I think green rooftops are another really fantastic thing that have come up lately. And people are um, 
using what would have been underutilized spaces to create community gardens, perhaps outdoor meeting spaces, barbecue areas, that kind of thing, and socializing on rooftops, which is kind of fun to see. When we were talking prior to this, you told me about the the Dufferin Grove story. Could we Mm -hmm. kind of end with that amazing story? Sure, yeah. And I I think, too, I mean, the Dufferin Grove story is a a really interesting one, and it's ongoing. But I think, you know, we're we're learning so much from all these different examples, and there's really been a great uh, movement, I think, led in part by a guy named Jan Gale who's an urban designer in Copenhagen. He wrote a book called Life Between Buildings. But the thing that seems to be emerging now is we're, we're looking at the interventions that we do, whether we're retrofitting a park or a street and measuring whether or not people are gathering there, what kind of activities they're doing. So we're really evaluating the change and, and whether or not it's achieving what we, we set out to do. So that's, and we can learn from that and learn how to how to do it again or do it slightly differently. But um, in Dufferin Grove, yeah, it's a park in Toronto where some members of the community got together and decided that there was a real opportunity to bring some new activity into the park and that the park as it sat wasn't really meeting the needs of people living around it. So they've done things. They, they built a, a pizza oven. They've put in um, community gardens. Some of it's for food. Some of it's for, for decorative flowers. They're growing native plants in, in other areas. They've got a playground, which is kind of fun. I remember taking the kids there and somebody came down with a cart full of coffee. Uh, it was a student hired on a, on a summer employment program. And I thought, wow, this is, this is great. And the, the playground itself was, was kind of unique because they just had big pile of sand uh, with some shovels and a hose. So the kids could kind of, it was like an adventure playground, low tech. Uh, they took the, um, they had a hockey rink there and they uh, created uh, you know, more opportunities for community skate. Hockey is still a big thing, but there were other people who wanted to skate as well. And they converted their um, Zamboni room into a little clubhouse. So they got a wood stove in there and a library. And another uh, student employment program, they're baking cookies in the, in the clubhouse, making soup. And they even have once a week community suppers. So you can really see the hand of the community in in the programming and the design uh, changes in the park. And this is not something we would typically see from the parks department, but it's, it's um, the parks department opening up the decision-making process to allow the community to shape things to meet their needs. And it's a hugely popular park. Sometimes I look at it and I think, wow, this is really a place that's created almost like building blocks for sustainability. You can learn how to grow food, you know, come together in a regular setting and solve problems together, you know, learn how to make pizza, uh, handle, there's areas that they're experimenting with stormwater collection, so collecting rainwater for use in gardening, all sorts of really kind of wild and wonderful things. And without walls and a roof. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, on the park, yeah. <laughs> we don't need to build a recreation center, right? We're just using nature yeah. our, as our recreation yeah. center. Yeah, it's, So I want to thank you, Paul. This has been really a a great conversation and, you know, a lot of ideas and suggestions on how we can, you know, look at the built environment and how we can address the the loneliness that's happening in our communities. This is just one of the discussions that we, that are part of this series on loneliness. Uh, To listen to other podcasts um, or for resources, please go to our website, tamarackcommunity.ca. Thanks so much. Thanks, Heather.